for your reconsideration, is proudly part of the Flickering Myth Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the For Your Reconsideration Film Podcast, an audio feast which promises highbrow mirth, in-depth, incisive movie analysis, sensible, demure laughter, and absolutely no toilet humour. Nope, zero. Not even a single errant squirt. I'm Rob, and here is James. Hello. How are you? I'm all right, mate. That felt quite weird, didn't it? It did. We're, we're flying as a twosome this evening, aren't we? We are. We are. He's off on a secret mission on His Majesty's Secret Service. <laughs> yes, he is. It's uh, very much the inmates of running the <laughs> asylum this evening. So if it isn't apparent it is. to the listener generally, Simon sort of is in charge of all the technicals and things like that and sort of stops us being complete <laughs> idiots. So it's going to be interesting how this goes tonight with just the two of us let loose. It really is. Um, and obviously, with him being, you know, um, like he does all the checks before we go on air. So if we sound like we're down a well right now, that is, it's our fault, not his. <laughs> I think that's the best way to put it. Um, uh, his, I believe. Oh, no, that... no, let's blame him for everything. Let's blame him oh, for okay, everything. Oh, okay, yeah, he yeah. Can't, he, can't, he can't, there's never a bottle. So everything's his <laughs> fault that goes wrong with this episode. Uh, yeah, and um, uh, you know, it all went. This episode all went wrong in the edit, which is quite ironic because that's what he's doing. He's a professional editor in London Town. Uh, his bosses have handed him an urgent last-minute deadline, so it's really the industry's fault, not ours. It is, it is, and you know, oh, what a square! Just trying to keep the roof <laughs> over his head. I know, yeah. Well, food I, I on the table. We we don't come across great here, mate, because unlike all good cinematic soldiers, we are leaving a good man behind and pressing on without him. <laughs> but as, as Tupac famously celebrated, as I hold my can of light beer aloft, to the homies that we lost. <laughs> <laughs> I have knew you... he shouldn't have gone to endorse that theme park off the cost of coastal... coastal no, Asia. I know, I know, I know. These projects that he finds himself involved with, you know... Um, I just hope the little, you know, the little white shirt and pants set fit him. All right, you know, because <laughs> I think Richard Attenborough was a little bit short. <laughs> uh, so how are you, mate? Have you watched anything good this week? Yes, I have. I've had some uh, a very Manson family themed viewing this week. So um, oh. so I've watched two really excellent things where they are in the material, but sort of in the background or looming large over the atmosphere of the story. So I went to see the new Tarantino, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, yeah. No spoiler to say that the Manson family do feature in that film. Uh, Mm. No spoilers Mm. at all, but I would urge people to check it out. Uh, I liked it a lot. I think it will grow on me in the same way that The Hateful Eight did, which I thought was good the first time I saw it, but it's sort of grown on me with subsequent viewings, and I think that will be the case with this one. And uh, also Mindhunter on Netflix Ah. was back this week yeah, uh, with the first three episodes directed by David Fincher, and that also has a Manson family element to it as well. So, yeah, that's amazing TV and really, really good. I've almost finished the whole season. Cool, cool. So generally, you know, um, such wholesome stuff, Manson family, really impacting your life there. <laughs> I'm just going to watch romantic comedies all weekend just to get back on an even keel. <laughs> Pull yourself out of the psychological terror mire that you found yourself in. What about yourself? No, nah, nothing this week, mate. Um, the only thing really is that um, obviously I'm desperate for the summer holidays to finish so the kids can go back to school and actually get something done. <laughs> Um, but the obsession with Paul Blart has got out of hand at our house. Um, 
to the point that we have, you know, kids coming around to play and before we know what's going on, like everyone is baying for Blart around the house. So I had like four kids shouting at me this week, only two of which were my own. We want Blart! We want Blart! We want Blart! Oh my God. Seriously, it's got so out of hand. Um, I've even got my 18 months, uh, sorry, he's 20 months now. Um, he shouts at people, airbag, like Paul Blart does in a sort of a rather OTT gag in Paul Blart Mall Cop 2. Um, and again, it's two they want. It's not one. No, no. They don't want the original. They, <laughs> they want the lesser sequel. <laughs> so I think my viewing on Totalist, I mean, there was one evening where we watched it five times back. Oh, my God. And that's where we are with this. So, yeah. <laughs> Based on that harrowing tale, I would rather hang out with the Manson family we've been with at the moment. <laughs> yeah, you've had the easier, better deal on this one. Paul Blart, Manson family, yeah, I don't balance feel... which way you're going. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Anyway, moving on, because there is a lot to discuss. Um, today's pick Oh, is... we've got... No, go back, go for it. Well, it's yours, isn't it? I know, I know. It's yours, isn't it, Rob? It's It's your pick. pick. And and for the first time, we are going to Cage Country. Nicolas Cage. Now, we're doing a podcast about movies that deserve reconsideration because they didn't get received very well. How's it got to 18 episodes before we touch on Nicolas Cage? I don't know, but this won't be the last time because there's so much to cover in Cage Country. It's a vast and wonderful landscape (laughs) with much, much... There's a lot to dig into. Let's let's be perfectly honest. There's a lot here. This is like Cage is most restrained, I would say. In I would agree with you. I would agree with you. Um, firstly, I mean, let's talk about this guy, Nicholas Cage, right? First time we've gone to Cage. Town. Love him. Absolutely love him. <laughs> what a specimen he is on a human level. And his life outside of movies is just as colourful and celebrated as his moments actually on film. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, James, what are your favourite Nicolas Cage non-film-related stories? Because there is a lot of them, isn't there? Oh, so the non-film-related stories. Oh, my goodness. Sorry, Rob, you've caught me off guard. Oh, no, I mean... You asked me about my favourite moments from his film. Oh, no, go for it. Let's have both. Let's do both. Let's have um, the famous... Just your favourite Cage moments. I mean, I was going to go with... Because my favourite Cage moments aren't actually when he's in movies. Like when he's getting high with his cat. (laughs) Like doing mushrooms with his cat. Yeah, brilliant. Stuff like that. I love all that kind of stuff. Where did he live in England where he got asked to switch on the Christmas lights one year? And he was so... (laughs) This is probably the issue I have with this film. It's like when he's ever asked to do something normal, he just looks like an absolute lunatic. <laughs> like, I just don't imagine him as a real person at all. And that's probably my problem. I just always imagine him doing something crazy constantly. So, yeah, he lived, didn't he live in a castle down he south did, somewhere? Yeah, he did. Was it like near Bath or something like that? Yeah, yeah. He was asked to switch on the, the Christmas lights in the local village and. Oh, he just looks like an absolute lunatic. Just doing an... He's just being himself. But he's not... He's not like you and I, Nicolas Cage. He's better. He's on a different level. That's it. Like, he's a... He's a different kind of person. I agree, mate. If you wanted a Christmas lights turning on session to be normal, you go get someone from EastEnders or Emmerdale. You don't get Nicolas Cage for that. Yeah. You get Nicolas Cage to come in here <laughs> with a bit of panache, a little bit of uniqueness. <laughs> oh, dear, man. So on, on the film, on films then, what's your favourite thing he's done, like, 
Oh, there's so many cageisms, isn't there, though? I mean, there's there's hundreds, hundreds. <laughs> like, I've got a few choice ones here, which I really like. So, uh, the pharmacy scene in Matchstick Men. Are you a fan of that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Men? That movie's ace. <laughs> yes. So, he, he jumps the queue in the pharmacy and he's um, to get his prescription refilled. And he's, he's it's a full-on cage mania moment. He's ticking all <laughs> over the place. And uh, one guy politely asks him if he's ever heard of a queue. <laughs> and he, say, uh, he politely goes back to him. Have you ever been dragged to the sidewalk and beat until you're pierced blood? <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> then, yes. Uh, <laughs> In Mandy from last year, there's a scene where he's in his toilet in his underpants, covered in blood, just <laughs> screaming for a minute straight, just necking vodka. Uh, the Rock, the sex scene in The Rock is one of the funniest oh, things ever. It really is, really is. Like To the point that I didn't know when it came out that that's not what people say during those moments. Like, I didn't know you started going, like, about, you know, it's like cream, like a peach or bay persuasion. <laughs> I didn't know that's what you didn't do, you know. <laughs> I like the pigtails. They're naughty. Oh, yeah. They're naughty. Well, I mean, oh, I've forgotten about that. The, the glee, the mirth in my, um, I'm feeling at the moment. Oh, dear. But he, I mean, you, he's the gift that will not stop giving, is Nicolas Cage. Oh, no, he's, he's a fearless, fearless performer. He is. Like, he is. he'll just swing for the fences every time. He like, will give everything. He will apart give from in this everything. particular film that we're discovering tonight. I know, like, I know. But uh, I've got to say, <laughs> I, I can't I'd be remiss of me if I didn't mention my absolute favourite. So this comes from Face Off. So his entire oh, yeah. performance is brilliant. Yeah, when he's totally. actually playing Caster Troy, when he's playing John Travolta in Caster Troy's body is unbelievable uh, but my favorite bit is uh, during the shootout sequence that opens the film and uh, John Travolta catches up with him in the uh, in the hangar and he manages to get the drop on him and he puts a gun to his head and he just starts singing to him like oh yeah yeah because he thinks that Travolta's gonna blow his head off and he's like I'm ready yeah I'm ready, ready for, for the, the big, big ride, baby, baby. <laughs> I agree. And then he gets kicked into a jet engine and into a coma. <laughs> it, it's so good. That that film is so good. I and mean, we could go on and on about that film, but we're not doing that film. You're right. This The movie tonight does include some restrained cage, but there are moments when he cages out a bit. And it, because it's in contrast it does, with him yeah. trying to be restrained... It makes it all the more brilliant. <laughs> it really does. I was watching tonight's film, you know, and I was just thinking, like, this is, a, I, you know, uh, we're, we're going to get into the film itself. Oh, yeah, but yeah. This, he's too much of a maverick to just play a straight lace sort of regular <laughs> yeah, guy. Yeah, you can't do it. You know, to, to use a footballing analogy, it'd be like asking a player like Ronaldinho to play conservatively, <laughs> just sit in front of the back four and keep the ball ticking over. It's never going to happen. He's going to be doing rondos and club yeah. turns and Maradona's <laughs> on the edge of his six-yard box in five minutes. Like... You can't keep these majestic birds caged. They've got right. to go. That, They've got to fly. Can that go on the DVD cover of whatever film he's got coming out next, please? You can't keep these majestic birds caged. Caged! Yes, caged. Yes. It's a pun. Oh, it's brilliant. Uh, oh. I think, and for my money, I mean, I love everything he does. The Christmas light story is absolutely brilliant, but... There's so much stuff I don't even know where to begin, but I love the photographs when he gets caught in public and he just doesn't look like the Nicolas Cage we know and he just looks like 
<laughs> maniac with intense eyes and a beard. Um, but like, you know, the stories about him going on planes with Charlie Sheen when he, he steals the the pilot's microphone and says, I'm the, you know, I'm the pilot and I'm, I, I'm drunk and uh, <laughs> everyone panics. And, uh, and everyone, everyone, <laughs> and everyone, you know, like airport security, you know, pull him to one side when they land. And he says like, no, but at least I'm not as bad as him and points at Charlie Sheen. And Charlie Sheen was just so happy to be carrying like a load of cocaine on him. <laughs> so Sheen got arrested and Cage got away with everything. He's so good. Um, yeah, getting high with his cat, that's brilliant. Um, like his quote from that, iron- you know, like iconically is, I was looking at, and his cat's called something hilarious, like Lewis or something like that. You know, like a, a, a human name for a pet again. We're like Kevin in road territory. And he said like, it's at that moment I knew that me and Lewis were brothers. <laughs> He's, but like an intruder in his bed, like he woke up and there was a guy stood at the end of his bed. <laughs> bed in underpants <laughs> so stood at the end of his bed in underpants he broke into his cage's house cage's in bed with his wife right he broke into his house took everything off apart and gone in cage's wardrobe and got one of his leather jackets and stood at the end of cage's bed <laughs> eat, eating a fudge sickle <laughs> waiting for him to wake up <laughs> Terrifying. I I read an article about this today, about this moment, and the writer of the article was just obsessed with the fact that Cage recognised that it was, you know, specifically this kind of iced treat. (laughs) Like, oh, that's a (laughs) footsicle. You know, not that there was an intruder in the house in Cage's clothes and nothing else. (laughs) It's one of the rare, it must be one of the rare occasions in Nicholas's life where he's in a scenario where he isn't the most intense person in the room. (laughs) Or he isn't doing the weirdest thing in the room. (laughs) Uh, um, No, for me, the the standard, as a dinosaur fan, when he spent $270,000 buying a T-Rex skull from Mongolia, only to find out that it had (laughs) been... Bought by the Mongol, you know, he'd been smuggled out of the country by the Mongolian black market, and he had to give it back. And this, ladies and gents, is why he has to make four hundred movies a year now because he's yeah. terrible with money. Like when when I go to the shop, I'm like, oh dear, should I get should I get that extra loaf of bread? Now we don't need that. He's in a shop. He's like T Rex skull, bingo. <laughs> Let's do it. Quarter of a million dollars, no sweat. I'll just have a. Uh... 50 oh. punnets of peaches. I just fancy here. I could eat a peach for hours. I could eat a peach for hours. Oh, he's just everything. I, but there's no film that I don't love him. think would be Absolutely better for him. having him in it. Like, I'd have him in any film. <laughs> just as a walk-on. Yeah. Just a walk-on. Or just like two minutes. To, the central characters go into a shop and he's just working behind the counter in the shop. I, I want a campaign to get Cage in every fir- in every film with just one line. Yeah, <laughs> CG him in. With this one will line. supplement his income as well. Yeah, well, like, you know, keep if, him out of trouble. If you are buying black market dinosaur <laughs> bones, you are going to need a bit of financial backing. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear! Um, should we move on to the movie, mate? I mean, yeah, yeah. Because this has been fifteen minutes of chatting about the dynamite legend that is Nicolas Cage. All right, tonight's movie, my pick. Nicholas Cage is MIT professor John Kessler, who links a mysterious list of numbers from a time capsule to past and future disasters and sets out to prevent the ultimate catastrophe. You 
and me together forever. The theory of randomness says it's all simply coincidence. There is no grand meaning making it possible for you to be sitting here in this riveting lecture. <laughs> 50 years ago, the students of William Dawes Elementary imagined what the future might hold. Today, we unveiled their legacy. It's a list of dates. Every major global disaster for the last 50 years in perfect sequence. With a piece of paper that's been buried in the ground for five decades. The next number on the chain predicts that tomorrow, 81 people are going to die in some kind of tragedy. Get off the train. Why? What's wrong? Just take the baby and get off the train. Presumed dead at 81. The prediction came true. It's not coincidence. Don't let him watch the news. Why won't you tell me what's going on? They were here. Who? The Lucifer people. What do you want with my son? The numbers are a warning. They're a warning to everyone. This is not a test. This is an emergency broadcast transmission. We're going to stay on the air for as long as possible. Are we gonna die? I will never let that happen, Caleb. Do you hear me? Never. I always thought that trailer was really, really good. Um, but I suppose um, the question is, why would I pick this one tonight? First off, it's directed by Alex Proyas, um, who directed The Crow um, and iRobot, um, amongst other things. But um, he's had quite um, a, a sparse cinematic career in terms of his directorship, Proyas. But The Crow, I just absolutely adored The Crow. Um, so I would watch anything he's done since then. So when he did a like a big blockbustery kind of movie with Nicolas Cage. I was all in, baby, <laughs> from the very beginning. Um, but James, what is your like um, relationship with this film? Like, when, uh, when did you see it? I saw this in theatres when it was released oh, as seriously? a big Cage head. And this was during the period mm. where he was still doing only theatricals, name on the top of the poster. Yeah. And I went to see this because I love me some Nicolas Cage. I haven't kept up with all of his... There's too much. All of his <laughs> yeah, director streaming right. and a lot of the independent stuff that he's doing because I, he's better than that a lot of the time. Some of those he movies is. are quite good, like Mandy from last year is really, really good. Uh, and a few of them are, uh, are excellent. But for the most yeah. part, they seem like paycheck movies and he's better than that. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, um, yeah. I was excited to see this when it came out. I went to see it, and I was excited to watch it again this week. Nice, nice. Did you like it at the time? I did. I did. Yeah. <laughs> no, I really enjoyed I, it. This is the thing, like, because I've got to be honest. I will watch Cage in anything. I mean, I'd watch him on a bog. I, I, I do watch him do anything. But um, 
I we you should see Mandy then. <laughs> oh, I haven't seen it. Yet. I haven't seen it. Um, I I love the fact, especially with this one, a lot of it got panned quite a lot. Yes, and I was really interested to know why because it it has a lot of the big blockbustery tropes, which and and people seem to love the movie a lot to a certain point, but there is one review that really caught my eye with this uh, when it came out which stands apart from everything and this is one of the reasons why I'd like to Can I predict which review you're going to go for? Yeah, yeah. I think you are going to summon up the late great Roger Ebert You are right. uh, Giving this his full four stars. Absolutely right. Like, And he does not do this often. Or he did not do this often sorry. No. Critically across the board it was meandering and middling and audiences like we always get, because so I should say we're filling in the critical bit, aren't we? Because Simon usually covers this. I know, yeah. This is where we're going to really fall down. I feel. <laughs> it is, it is. I mean, he's too busy fighting see-through aliens in the South American jungle uh, for us to, you know, to be available this evening. So I'll have to, you know, we'll fill in for this bit. But um, yeah, Rotten Tomatoes, thirty-three percent critical reception, forty-two percent audience. Both quite low. Metacritic, a little bit more forgiving. 41% critical, 60% user. Now, in amongst all this, you've got celebrated critic, just as you say, James, Roger Ebert going, this is four out of four. He does it out of four stars, doesn't he? Or did it out of four stars. Sorry, yes, keep, he does, keep yeah. missing the past tense. And and he just, he absolutely eulogised about it. I've read his review in full a number of times, but at the time it was like, wow. And so his the the, yeah. so the headline line from the review is, Knowing is among the best science fiction films I've seen. Frightening, suspenseful, intelligent, and when it needs to be, rather awesome. Yeah. And so there's this huge disparity, isn't there, between the, you know, different ends of the critical reception. But when you've got a guy like Ebert saying it, you have to listen. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and not that he's infallible. I'm sure I haven't agreed with him on a lot of stuff, but I was like, I saw that review at the time as well. I was a big fan of Roger Ebert. Yeah, um, you know, he's a critic that I trusted. Yeah, in terms of his opinion on films, he wasn't always right, but you could always feel like his reviews were coming from a place of loving cinema. Yeah, and uh, he was obviously based on that review. He's quite a big Alex Proyas fan. Yeah, as well, and uh, he absolutely loved this movie. Mm. And the other thing, just to, to jump on from that, James, is that I always thought he was fair as well. You know, I didn't think he had an axe to grind yes. or hatchet jobs or anything like that. He was not talking about blowing up his head with dough in Greg's or anything like that. He was, um, check out earlier yeah. episodes, listeners. But um, yeah, just to counterbalance that, New York Daily News' Joe Neumeyer gave it zero stars and said, it's not prophetic, it's just pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> so it's fascinating isn't it this I think I know why as we go into discussing yeah. this movie I think I know why <clears throat> there is such um, a split here I, I think I can posit a theory as well go for it man go for as it as to why there might be such disparity um, because it's absolutely mental <laughs> <laughs> there's about 15 different genres going on <laughs> yes, in this yeah. particular film Yeah, you cannot fault the ambition of this film you could maybe fault a lot of different things in it but the ambition would not be one <laughs> That is so well said, mate. So well said. And I couldn't agree more. Um, James, what about budget and box office here? Because it looks big budget, this. Yeah, surprisingly, it's a decent budget, but not as high as you might think. And I think that does show in certain elements. So what would you have this budget at? Um, Having seen the whole film, obviously, a couple of times, and not just the... Because the trailer makes 
liberal use of a amazing plane crash moment. Yes. Uh, it looks like a hundred million. Yeah. No, half it. Fifty million. Fifty million dollars. Apparently, this 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 is a miracle that <laughs> they've done this on fifty yes. million dollars. How have they done that? And it did one hundred and eighty-three million worldwide, so profitable as well. Oh, Big hit. Yes. Uh, I mean that that that's amazing. That is a big hit. Yes. That a very big hit. Yeah. Sorry, mate. I am absolutely blown away by that fifty million stat. That because this goes to yes. to gigantic places. This film, and it look. I mean, every penny must be on the screen. It just has to be. It does, but this is possibly where we're going to differ slightly. Is I don't think the CGI is very oh, good. Yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. it has. There are certain areas that have weathered terribly, really terribly. Um, yes, yeah, yeah, and I don't know if I don't remember that being an issue at the time. Mm. So maybe if it's just watching it ten years on mm. or not, but I've 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 found it really clanging this time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll get into the specifics as we go through because there's some there is some really great filmmaking going on here, but. I think it's really stretching at the limits of that budget. Yeah, I agree with you, man. I agree with you, mate. Um, So this was a 2009 movie, wasn't it? Correct, yes. So what did we have coming out about the same time? Did we have anything of no? Well, as I say, it did really well at the box office, so there was nothing... Yeah, yeah, it's uh, kind of a moot point, isn't it, really? Yeah, that affected it at all. What is quite an interesting tidbit is that this is the second... uh, movie that Rose Byrne did where the sun was trying to destroy humanity she in sunshine <laughs> two years earlier with Danny Boyle. So, so typecast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, the sun's trying to destroy the earth. I've got Rose Byrne on speed dial. Let's go. I don't know if she's completed that trilogy or not. <laughs> I know, yeah. Well, I found this quite um, uh, interesting because Rose Byrne has done so many comedy roles recently that I found it quite... Whoa, she's playing it straight. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it was quite, oh, wow, you know. That was very much a later career sort of switch for her. She did Bridesmaids yeah. playing the sort of stuck-up character. Yeah, yeah. And she was really, really funny in that. And then, every oh, I think she was actually in Getting to the Greek before that as uh, Russell Brand's pop star girlfriend. I think you're right, so yeah. So she can do the lot. She's really, really good. Yeah. So she can do uh she can do the dramatic and she can also do comedy and she's really, really good in the comedies that she's in. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree, man. Um I watched a bit of Bridesmaids the other night. Um just in passing, my wife had it on when I was going through uh to get a cup of coffee. A uh, little insight into domestic bliss there. It was the bit, you know, in the uh, in the wedding shot. <laughs> oh, what a scene. I know, what I a know. scene that is. Everyone is so good it's in that. So scene. good. <laughs> That movie's brilliant. It is. I absolutely it is love totally that brilliant, movie. Isn't it, man? It's so funny. It really is, yeah. Um, right, back to Cage. Back, hey, to, back Cage. to Cage. Back to Cage. <laughs> right, okay. So, um, yeah, as I was going through some of the um, other reviews and trying to work out why this film didn't, you know, why it was so divisive. And James, you mentioned just a couple of minutes ago about how that there was so many different themes and tones and ideas rubbing up against each other that there's a load of different um, screenwriters involved in this, I believe. So Philadelphia Inquirer's Stephen Ree gave it a very, very um, on-the-fence 50%, uh, saying that knowing has about half a dozen screenwriter credits, which may explain why scenes crash up against one another. Smart, stupid, far-fetched, compelling. And the trouble is the cage walks or runs them, <laughs> runs through them all, treating each with the same level of intensely goofy seriousness. <laughs> now, the real winner there is obviously Cage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but that kind of backs up exactly what you're saying. Yeah, so I don't know where he's getting half a dozen from. I counted three screenwriters. Oh, right, right. Which isn't completely unheard of. Yeah. 
it looks to me like the story and the original screenplay was originated by a guy called Rin Douglas Pearson, who's actually a novelist by trade. Do you remember that uh, Bruce Willis movie, Mercury Rising? Yes, I do, yeah. Where Bruce is... uh, is trying to protect uh, an autistic child yeah, yeah. from the government. Yeah, yeah, I do. I do remember that. Yeah. He writes those novels. They're his novels. Oh, That's based on a novel series written by this guy, Rin Douglas Person, who obviously came up with the idea, wrote a screenplay. And then, as will happen in Hollywood from time to time, some other screenwriters were brought in to polish up the script or do another pass at it. And that was a, a screenwriting partnership in Juliet Snowden and Styles White. So, I don't think it's anything untoward, you know. And then I assume Alex Proyas is also a bit of a writer, probably yeah, took an uncredited yeah. pass at it as well. So yeah, yeah. it's not unheard of, this sort of thing, to be perfectly honest. Of course. So I wouldn't put much stock in that. No, no, that's interesting. Really interesting. I love how, you know, a lot of people a lot of people seem to go for like the very middling review of this. Um and again, I, I yeah. still think it's for reasons we're gonna go into because this this is a film that swings to the fences and you either go with it or you don't. Yes. <laughs> you know. And there's a few points where you, you're either going to or you're going to get off completely. Like, yeah. there's some moments where it dares you to, to right, just walk out now because we're, go- we're going to places. We're going yeah. to places. You can come with us if you want, but yeah. if you don't want to, you've got to leave now. I agree with you, mate. I agree. The Flickering Myth Podcast is a source for all of the weekly entertainment news that we could possibly be bothered to talk about. Tune in every Tuesday for a roundtable discussion featuring a host of Flickering Myth writers and contributors. You can find us on all your favorite podcatchers as well as right here at flickeringmyth.com, part of the Flickering Myth Podcast Network. So, um, the film itself. Should we go for it? Should we get in there? Let's go for it. Let's get into it. Let's let's get up in them goods. <laughs> Sick. Uh, we're uh, <laughs> uh, we start with an. I mean, it's a numerically creepy opening in 1959. Uh, it's a it's, yes. it's a period opening. Awesome, lovely. Yeah, uh, Lucinda Embry is a little girl who's um, quite terrifying looking. Yeah, she just loves the numbers. This kid, she's got some issues. Uh, yeah, she's and she's they're, they're doing a, a time capsule, aren't they? And she's writing numbers. Yeah, there's whispering in her ear. Um, Marco Beltrami's doing the music. By the way, he's doing an amazing job, uh, as he always does. Yeah, he's really good. Yeah, super job. Because actually, just to deviate and talk about Beltrami for a second, the score goes with the left turn. <laughs> doesn't it? Oh, it does. And the score ramps up as we get into. There's about five different scores in there. There is, as well. yeah, man. But unlike with the Punisher, this actually works. <laughs> this this yes. actually gets the right notes. Because it corresponds with what's on the screen for the most part. <laughs> yes, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It gets very Hitchcockian in places. It's quite foreboding on, yeah. around the horror elements. And then there's some sci fi wondrousness as well. In yeah. Is wondrousness a word? Oh, I think uh, you it can is have now. That. I'm you using it. It's been on the FYR podcast. It's 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 real now. It's legit. Yeah, get it in that Oxford kitchen. <laughs> Royalties to the usual address, please. Uh, <laughs> do we have an address? Uh, yeah, I found it. I mean, this kid looks so much like Rose Byrne. It was unnerving. Yeah, it was great casting. Yes, yeah, great casting. Super, super and there's some casting. lovely uh, for. But, uh, I mean, we don't know where the movie's going at this stage no. on a first watch, but there's some lovely uh, foreshadowing, as we oh, call it yeah. in the business. So she's just stood there staring up at the sun, don't we? 
Because oh. the sun's going to come into play later on in a big bad way. So yes, yeah, yeah. No, no. Really loving this stuff. And then they do a time capsule. It, the time capsule thing reminded me of this really funny sketch. Uh, are you familiar with the uh, with the show Scott Squad? No, no, I haven't even heard BBC. of it. No, no. There's a there's a really funny sketch in that show where um, the it's about a, a group of Scottish policemen and the constable's really excited because he's going to dig up a time capsule from the <laughs> 1970s. And he goes, <laughs> he goes in there, and he's really excited with every item that he's pulling out. And because of things that have happened over the preceding decades, he has to keep on putting them back in and apologising. So it's just like Gary Glitterell. No, no, letters no. to Jim will fix it. <laughs> it's absolutely hilarious. Oh, so yeah, that's, that's a shout bad. out for Scott Squad. That's that sounds really, really, worth really funny. Us. Oh dear, it's very uh, funny uh, that. On, on the topic of the time capsule being put in the ground, can I just get a little shout out to what the workmen were wearing when they put them in? Uh, what were they wearing, Rob? Please enlighten double, us. I'm sure double it'll denim. Have nothing to do with you. Double <laughs> denim. Oh, yeah. We're back. I did check the shoes. We're not fresh Timberlands. We are sort of some grim 50s early equivalent, but we still got a Van Damme reference in there. Hard target. 100% record. All right. I don't understand the reference. I don't. What's that got to do with them? James, don't do this to me. I'm so gullible. Do you want- <laughs> I could eulogise about Hard Target if you'd like me to. <laughs> I actually, I listened back to, you know, when we talked about Van Damme on the red carpet in, in, <laughs> in Last Action Hero, and I sound like a little girl. <laughs> you do, you do. Uh, anyway, right. Simon's going to be so annoyed with us. We're so all over the place. But he shouldn't be fighting terrorists at the top of Nakatomi Plaza. If he, if he wants to go off and do that, do it on his own time, not on podcast recording. Exactly though. right. Exactly right. Get back down here. <laughs> know your place, Si. <laughs> uh, Linda, Lucinda, sorry, little girl, she's gone lost uh, until she's found in a cupboard scratching numbers into wood via her own fingernails. And she'd like uh, the whispering to stop. And it's all quite creepy. Yes, as we all would. (laughs) That's a real, like, visceral thing for me. Anything to do with fingernails, and I'm like, oh, yeah. It puts me properly on edge, you know, like. (sighs) Yeah. The the sound design was really good, wasn't it? Oh, it's horrible, yeah. And then it's quite haunting in the sense that she's still, like, the teacher pulls her hands away from the wood, and her hands are still trying to scratch out the numbers into the midair, and she's like, she's like, make them stop, make them stop. That's gross. It's absolutely gross. And there's little yeah. flecks of blood up her top, you know, where her fingers have flicked blood up. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's, so far what I'm getting is this is portentous, but it's a good-looking movie, this. And we're in the hands of good filmmakers here. Yeah, it all looks great. The uh, cinematographer's a top guy as well. That is is a guy called Simon Duggan who would go on to shoot the great Gatsby for Baz Luhrmann. And whether oh. you like that movie or not, you can't deny that it looks Absolutely yeah. phenomenal. And he also shot uh, Hacksaw Ridge for horrible person, Mel Gibson. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> we haven't gone to Gibson Town yet on this podcast, have we? So We haven't, no. We're going to have to sort of play that right. People don't like him. I don't know. Maybe it's because he's horrible, generally. <laughs> <laughs> uh, moving swiftly on whenever we get on to it. Um then we move to the present and we get these really um I love these titles, man. Yeah. You know, um 
coming down from space intermittently. I just think it looks so good. Yeah, brilliant. No, I, I, I think the opening's really, really strong. And then, so we get the rest of the credits. And then Cage is looking through a telescope <laughs> with his son, uh, Caleb. Yeah, I, I, I love this because we go from space down to Cage, which I assume that's what we all do, yeah. you know uh, extraterrestrial life would be doing. Because you're gonna when you look down there, you don't. When we go to the zoo, we look at the thing. We look at the most in- interesting thing in the exhibit, don't we? So they're just doing the same thing. They're looking down and looking at the most interesting. Thing. There's Cage. He's on a telescope. He's He's got family barbecue. <laughs> get out of yeah, He is having a family barbecue. He is, yes. he is. Not much of a family, granted, but <laughs> he is having a family barbecue. <laughs> uh, now, what I did like about the, the credits here was that um, a really good sense of perspective, especially as we get close to the ground, and it gave the film a really... It both. A, I've never had a sense of place delivered to me quite so interestingly while I've been watching movies, but um, it's so yeah. impressive. I guess that some of it's CGI and some of it's not, but it was great the way it came down. Yeah, brilliant. And then he's just in the back cooking hot dogs and sipping red. I mean, we should say that <laughs> Cage is pretty much a functioning alcoholic in this movie. Right the way through. <laughs> right the way through. And there's quite a good dollop of shoddy parenting going on. But then again, my kids are obsessed with Paul Blart, so I'm, I must be the expert on that. <laughs> yes, but would you nail a bottle of scotch in one night and then do the carpool first thing in the morning, having not slept because you were up all night doing random numbers? <laughs> I seem to remember as well, there were some other people's kids in the car at that point as well. No, I, yeah, I can honestly I mean. say He's I won't, I won't up the be doing that. Kids. I won't be doing that. Swap a swap it for a big bowl of scotch for maybe a couple of Bud Lights and a bowl of pistachio nuts. Now we're talking. <laughs> <laughs> Oddly specific, sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, first thing I'm seeing when I see Cage is amazing hair. Absolutely amazing hair. Which I believe is his own. Do you think that's his own? I think it is. It's... it's I don't think you'd put a, you'd have a wig where the, <laughs> the hairline is running away from the rest of his face. His forehead is absolutely massive in this movie. <laughs> I, I just, I'm, I'm, it's the only <laughs> thing I've got on him. I'm not, I'm, I'm fo- follically gifted. I don't have to worry about. Mate, this sort of I know, stuff. I know. Uh, J- James, <laughs> listeners, James is evergreen. He is absolutely evergreen. Um, uh, you know, I've got um, a shaven head at the moment, preempting my slide to Chrome Dome <laughs> to stay them. Um, but like, I mean, I'm looking at Cage's hair and thinking, if I've still got a shot at that in me, I'm going for it. <laughs> I mean, it's business in the front, party in the back, isn't it? Definitely, it's not quite a mullet, but there's some length towards the back. Well, but... the hairline's so far back, there's no business. It's like it's an empty shot at the front. <laughs> Zero yeah, dressed. Sorry, I should have said it's dressed down Friday in the front. <laughs> and the <laughs> party all weekend at the back. I mean, and, and as he starts running later on in the film, this this hair. I mean, it it could get a best supporting actor nod. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. Um, we get reminded quite quick, quite clunkily, and quite quickly that this kid's mum is dead. <laughs> sorry. Yes. Burnt to death in a hotel fire, which doesn't sound very nice. No, it's it's a. <laughs> Again, I shouldn't be laughing. She's not real. It's fine. <laughs> no, no, it's it's just because oh. I found this like this. There was a scene. He puts him to bed. The kid, 
And I mean, it was exposition tastic. Oh scene. yeah, lovely stuff. <laughs> they yeah. got so much stuff in. There was hearing aids going on. Um, they were bickering. You're learning about their relationship. The fact that mum isn't there anymore. Um, the fact that um, he does have a hearing disability, and that he uh, he also likes a drink. Does young Cage. And uh, they're kind of trying to make it work. Yeah. And there's loads going on, but they get all through it in about two minutes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, this, this, this is a thing, again, with the, with the ambition of the film. It's like, we've got to set this up because this is going to come back later. And then we have to set this up because this is going to come back later. <laughs> it's like, right, he's putting him to bed. Let's just download his entire life, basically, like I do with my <laughs> son every night when I put him... <laughs> it's true just in case anyone's watching <laughs> there's an audience who needs to know what's been happening with the two-year-old that day <laughs> yeah, yeah in case there's a fourth wall we don't know about exactly. like like when they used to be beetles about oh yeah you know i like as a kid I, every now and then i used to you know if i was by myself narrate things in case there was a beetles about camera about <laughs> Just, you know, in case I had to explain what I was doing. <laughs> oh, my God. No wonder you love Cage so much. He does that. Whoever the equivalent of Jeremy, the American does. equivalent of Jeremy Beadle is, he thinks he's always out to get him. <laughs> yes. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, so we established this dynamic. Then Cage is down in the basement sipping wine. He's not. He's not doing so well here. I have to add, he's in good nick here, Cage. He is. He is in good shape here. And he doesn't look like the sort of the fractured alcoholic that he quite clearly is in the in the in the movie. No, he'd probably come off another movie where he had to be in really good shape for it, and like just because he never stops working. Yeah, does yeah. he? He's always working constantly. I, I tell you what did confuse me. So we mentioned Face Off earlier, and like when Cage is in his coma in Face Off, he's a very furry man, you know, stomach and hair. You know, he's a, <laughs> yeah, quite a furry guy. There's a shot later on in this movie where he's in the shower. And the fuzz seems to have disappeared completely. That, that might be age. I mean, it's just manscaping's moved on in the <laughs> between 99 and... Yeah, Alex Proyas is a huge manscaping advocate. He insists all his leading men are... <laughs> I have no idea, man. Oh, we... Uh, let me just bring you back to Alex Proyas, by the way. We have to be careful what we say, otherwise he'll come for us. Right, so after... Uh, he doesn't like critics oh. at all, Alex Proyas. So I don't know if you've seen Gods of Egypt that came out a few years ago. No, I haven't. With Jerry Butler. Have you? I have seen some of it. Um, I'm going to leave it there because he'll come for me. <laughs> <laughs> um Anyway, after the film got panned and bombed at the box office, he went on quite the Facebook rant, which is I would encourage you to track down and read Good in your own grief. time. But this is what he had. This is how he described uh, critics: a pack of diseased vultures pecking at the bones of a dying carcass, trying to peck to the rhythm of the consensus. Dear me! So they were all off the Christmas card. Right? <laughs> I mean. In so many ways. I mean, I, I like all these movies, to be honest. I've not seen Gods of Egypt, so I can't comment on that one. But Dark City and The Crow and um, uh, iRobot. I loved iRobot. Yeah, and obviously this masterpiece. Well, exactly, exactly. Well, which is, I, that's not me being an arsehole. Like, I do like this movie quite yeah. a bit, even though we've just been talking rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's coming across, though, because, I mean, it's quite clear. Like, oh, we, there's gonna, we're gonna do, We're going to do in a wrap-up. But and in that wrap up, I know what I'm going to say, and it's going to be along the lines of, "I'm so glad that w- I, uh, uh, that what I'm watching is happening. That they've made this movie because I'd just rather see yeah, someone try movie, something yeah, yeah. absolutely ambitious 
and absolutely go for it yeah. than coast. You know, and this is not coasting at all. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. mad respect to you, Proyas. Mm. And of course, um, I love the fact that Roger Ebert wasn't one of those guys. He said it's one of the best science fiction movies ever made. So in your face. And you can take that to the bank. <laughs> As Seagal said, the blood bank. It, that that was in Hard to Kill, sorry. Seagal Van Damme, we've got, got that. <laughs> Don't you worry. Don't you worry. I've actually, there's a few people who've been asking me to do, um, to suggest more Seagal for the pod. Yes, it was one of... Uh, I sent you that message, <laughs> didn't I? Oh, no, no, no. Rob who He's the not pod. the only one. Seriously, he's not the only one. But, um, <laughs> Rob, thanks for listening to the to the pod, mate, and I'm so glad you enjoyed Seagal because that means I can squeeze more in. Excellent. <laughs> there is a back catalogue of Golden Era ready to come. Anyway, right, so... Should we get back to yes. the... Yes. <laughs> um, Cage is giving a lecture and he looks every inch the physics professor and Ben Mendelsohn, ben Mendelsohn comes in and he's got that ace role in movies that was perfected in Indiana Jones where someone comes in to hear the end of the hero's lecture. Yeah. I love them scenes. Yeah, I, I like this lecture scene because this is basically what the whole movie is about. So Cage is, works at MIT and he's doing a lecture about the determinism versus randomness, which is the central conflict that Cage has throughout the entire film. And uh, during which he does my favourite film trope ever is he realises how what he's lecturing the students about relates to his own circumstances and has a massive existential crisis in the middle of the lecture. <laughs> so, I'm so glad you took this one, mate, because I didn't know what I was going to say here. Um, we, we've, been in, we've been in lecture halls sat next to each other, goofing off, right? And if one of our lecturers did this, I don't think we'd have ever have stopped talking about it. <laughs> Especially if they were throwing like a, a, a paper mache sun at us, like one, I'd probably be asleep because I'd be hung over from the night before. Like it hit me square in the face. There's a claim. <laughs> uh, one of them's um, Liam Hemsworth, isn't it? Apparently so. Yeah, I didn't catch that, but I found that in the uh, on the IMDb trivia. Page. Yeah, apparently this is his first film role. Yeah, he um, he's the, the the is he the dude who says the sun is hot? Uh, he might be. I don't know. He's the dude because I was too busy when. <laughs> This person was on screen going like, is that Liam Hemsworth? Um, but he's the guy with the frosted teeth. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, I mean, it's obvious here from this scene that uh, Cage is not going to get over his wife anytime soon. Uh, but Ben Mendelssohn's going to yeah. help him try. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. And then he's like, oh, go away, Ben Mendelssohn. You're not really a big star yet. And whatever, yeah. you're over from Australia. I've got to go and sort this time capsule nonsense out so he goes to uh, <laughs> uh, the kids school so Caleb his son goes to the same school as Lucinda from the start mm. of the movie it's 50 years later they're going to dig up this time capsule and hopefully not find any paraphernalia. <laughs> <laughs> yes I mean that would be a, a different movie yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they don't they don't spoilers they don't find any of that stuff they find something much worse no. They do find uh, the they do the find a letter from the, the projectionist the from Last Action Hero in there. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. He's gonna kill him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, little care package from the projectionist. A couple of Gary Glitter LPs and a handwritten note. <laughs> I'm going to be sick. Oh, dear. Right. Um. 
So uh, Cage rocks up and he's almost late and they're singing a little song before they get the time capsule out. Um, and this is the bit where, you know, I said earlier, I don't want to see Cage playing uh, normal, regular, yeah. straight-laced people. Yeah. Uh, because he, because basically he can't. So he's at the back with all the other parents <laughs> right in the middle, yeah. And he's applauding the children, <laughs> right? And he looks like an absolute lunatic <laughs> yeah, when he's doing... <laughs> Right. It reminded me of the scene in Taxi Driver where Travis Bickle's applauding the politician that he's going to attempt to <laughs> It looks like they've let an axe murderer through the school gates. It's absolutely crazy. Do you know the bit I'm talking about? I do, about? I do. Like, shot. He can, I mean, Cage can't even stand normally. He can't even stand like a normal human being. It's so true though, because like, why is not why is no one looking? Going like, he is not behaving regularly. He's not doing anything normally here. All he's doing is clapping as well, but he can't even do that as a normal person. (laughs) Oh dear, oh dear. So I mean, um, yeah, the time capsule opens. And they all get given envelopes, and Cage's son, uh, Caleb, gets the, the creepy girl, Lucinda, Embry's, and it's uh, full of numbers. I thought, yeah. I thought like, this might be a continuity thing, but I thought the teacher had taken it off her at the start of the movie. Uh, but it turns out, you know, the teacher put it in there anyway, I guess. I know, yeah. Yeah, like, it's clearly the scrabblings of a very, very disturbed person where she was I... supposed to draw a picture. <laughs> And she's like, no, let's put this code from the Matrix in there. (laughs) (laughs) This will really mess them up. (laughs) Yeah, I I don't know why why put this in there, but I'm obviously so glad they did. Uh, Caleb spots a dude in the distance looking a bit weird, uh, loitering um, dressed in all black on the edge of a playground. (laughs) We're back. (laughs) We're back again. Is it Gary Glitter or Jimmy Savile? Who can tell? Well, which, it looks a bit like Jimmy Savile. Which, which one was referenced in the time <laughs> capsule? <laughs> oh dear. Uh, so yeah, we get that's our first time we see one of these guys. Uh, his hearing aid is messing up. Yeah, um, and there's lots of chattering coming through, like what Lucinda heard in the cold open. So we know yeah. there's some mysterious stuff going on, and he's been stalked by some weird guys who keep hanging around his school and have got seem to have their eye on him, which is worrying for in any scenario. Yes, that's it. As we're in, you know, I mean, we don't even really know what kind of movie we're in. We have no idea. We just know that something is ominously coming. That's all. Yes, this could be like a slasher film for all we know at this stage. You know, if we'd gone in completely blind and not known any, seen any trailers or anything like that, there's been no real sci-fi element as such yet. Nothing. No, um, apart from the chattering noises, so we're in full sort of horror territory. Yeah, because the, the chattering could just be um, psychosis, couldn't it? You know, it could be anything. At it all. absolutely could be. Yeah, yeah. Cage is lovely and earnest with his kid, um, and he has those lovely, yeah, earnest good. eyes. Michael Vartan. Well, he's he's way. I love you, Vartan, but we're I mean, he's, uh... we're different. Different categories here, mate. I'm so sorry. We're operating at a different league. (laughs) We are. Playing different sports. (laughs) Um, And they go home and I'm watching the little boy saying goodnight to uh, a video of his mum. And, oh dear, and there are these moments in it that really hit you in the heart. They really do. Yeah, yeah, that's really nice, yeah. 
He's. I think he's quite good. This kid actor. I'm not yeah. usually a huge fan of yeah. of kid actors, but he's not too bad. You know, he's not like the the kids we were going to put in our horrible day. <laughs> at all. No, no, he wouldn't. He's not he a candidate for that there. at all. But having said that, though, I think on the pod we were spoiled a few weeks ago by Dakota Fanning. Well, yeah, because we... she puts every child actor to absolute shame. I think. Yeah, and again, you know, you're operating at a different level. I've just seen her in a Quentin Tarantino movie. I didn't even realize it was her. She was that good in that particular in the scene that she's in. Wait, is she is she in Once Upon a Time? Yeah, apparently I didn't realize it was Seriously? her. She was that oh, good. Oh my word! Man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, wow. Did not know. Did not know. Um, I I nearly lost it watching this little boy say goodnight to his mum. Um, and Cage drinking up a storm, making himself accidental yeah. bumper whiskeys downstairs. But he get he does that thing in this moment here. He's a little bit drunk, and he puts the glass down. He puts it on all the numbers from the envelope. And when Cage notices something and you see that that dynamite spark in his eyes, he's so compelling to watch because he notices something about these numbers and he starts making... It's like drunken Cage making mad epiphanies for the next 10 minutes. It's ace. It's absolutely ace. I mean, I I remember at the time, a lot of people got... uh, It is weird that he Googles 9-11. Like, that is Mm, weird mm. because he would know all of that information. Mm. Said. But people seem to have a real a real issue with him Googling the rest of the dates. Like he knows every uh, atrocity that has ever happened in the world off the top of his head. What? <laughs> like, of course he'd Google it. Like, what else uh, would yeah. he do? You're not going to just go like, oh, well, blimey, that must have been like a hotel fire. Oh, well, sorry, that's the one his wife died in. He would know that. Uh, but... But the other ones, like, why would he know those things? Of course he wouldn't know those things. And this is, like, I think this is, this delivery of this mystery here is so cool and so high concept that I am all in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, one of the movies that did come out around this time. Do you remember that Jim Carrey movie, um, the number twenty, number twenty three? Yeah. yeah, that didn't do great at the box office, and that was sort of um, this. Uh, this one did do really well at the box office, but it was sort of like, well, uh, uh, are we do we really need any more of these number movies? I yeah. think that's possibly what caused the the critical um, so weird. the critical backlash against this one. Right, right. It's so strange that that. I mean, obviously, do you think that people in Hollywood, they get like a whiff of what's going on at another studio and they just green light another one that sounds like it might be similar? I think it's just a coincidence, so? to be honest with you. I think sometimes, I think sometimes like, um, you know, in the, in the case of maybe something that's more high concept, like Armageddon versus yeah. Deep Impact yeah, or yeah. dueling Robert, Robin Hood movies or, you know, yeah. White House Down versus uh, Olympus Has Fallen. Olympus that is Fallen, yeah. They're high concept ideas, you know. So each studio is trying to get that out at the same before each other. But I think in this particular scenario, no one's going to be like, "Oh, let's do a number conspiracy movie. <laughs> Make sure we get it out before the Nick Cage one." <laughs> Very true. I'd, it's so interesting because I'd I'd love. Um, I used to really enjoy those Peter Biskin books about inside the industry. You know. Uh, the ones he did, uh, what were they called? There was what the first one was about Easy Rider. Um, yeah, yeah, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. That's the one, mate. That's the one. Um, and then he did the follow up as well about Miramax and um, Tarantino and all that, uh, the Weinstein's but, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's a great book. Which the the name of it escapes yeah, me. Yeah, it's it. actually, you it, keep talking. It's on a shelf over there, and I just can't see it. Um, but those books were so so good, and so these stories behind the scenes, I always fascinated about them, especially you know if they involve yeah. uh, Seagal pooing in his own pants. Uh, the best behind-the-scenes stories that exist. Uh, the greatest Hollywood ever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Um, so the numbers and dates, uh, sorry, the numbers are dates and correspond to global catastrophe. So the numbers on this board, because uh, he starts writing them down frantically, and it's so compelling to watch him do this, because it's a mix of great editing yes. and a great performance. And these dates and numbers, sorry, these numbers correspond to dates of and death tolls of global catastrophes, which include the one that killed his wife. Yeah. And for me, the the evidence, I mean, they, these numbers just wouldn't randomly appear on a piece of paper, would they? No. No. Which is why I find it hilarious when Ben Mendelsohn says, I think, you, you know, I don't think you get enough sleep. <laughs> I don't, you know, he just plainly doesn't buy it. I absolutely love it. Like, no, no, I think, I think, I just think you're not coping very well. No, no, there's a piece of paper here and it's got dates and deaths on it and they all match up. Tell me, Ben Mendelsohn, what's going on? I mean, you're talking about scientists yeah. here, though. They're not like regular Joes like us who've seen a lot of movies. <laughs> they live on facts, don't they? <laughs> there's a uh, there's a psychological condition whereby numbers you see what you want to see within a sequence of numbers. So let me just look ah, so you kind of see what you want to see. Yes, yes. So it's suggestive. So ah. I think uh, Ben Mendelssohn is believing that Cage is possibly having a bit of a breakdown. Right, right, yeah. Uh, I, you know, I think I don't think that's too much of a stretch. No, um, no, of course you know, not. That he's managed to. Well, especially after you watched him have a meltdown. So the perceptual the phenomenon of people looking for patterns in randomness is called apophenia. Ah, it's very interesting. So that's in number strings, faces in trees, shapes in clouds, etc. Ah. So Ben Mendelssohn, being a learned, his character being a learned scientist probably thinks that's what's happening to Cage. But Cage isn't happy and he rages out at him like, why is he da 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 It's the first mega cageism in the film. Like, I'm not saying that 81 people are going to die, but I'm wondering why this says 81 people are going to die. It's so, so good. And he, this is where you get like material and then you get an actor taking the material to the next level. <laughs> yes, because you know that line wasn't written like that in the script. No, it wasn't at all. It wasn't. <laughs> I, 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 but I do, because again, like later on, Rose Byrne questions him on this. Like, no, 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 no. Are you sure? No, my mum was crazy. It never happened. It never happened. Like, have you not been paying attention? <laughs> you know? Um, Anyway, because I won't spoil that anyway, but Mendelssohn won't take him on, thinks he's lost his mind. And then he goes and sees the little old lady who's got dementia. The, she's the old teacher. Yeah. And then we get the, the people showing up at the house again to go and see Caleb, the, the white haired guys with the big pupils. And they're all a bit creepy and they're in dark coats. and They've all got blonde hair. And at this point, on a first viewing, I remember thinking they were part of a cult. Yes. Yeah, that's very much um, the the vibe that they're giving off because they, you don't hear them speak. You hear the sort of disembodied chattering yeah, every yeah, time they yeah, come around. Yeah. And they whisper to Caleb, but you don't hear their voices. And there's a very clear reason for that, which we'll find out oh, towards the yes, end of the film. And uh, they just give him a rock. Yeah. And, and then leave when Cage comes out and he's like... Hey, get off my lawn! <laughs> Whatever the hell he's shouting. Hey, Caleb, how's it Yeah, I, I thought it was... Um, it's a rock, isn't it? Because by the time he gets to the end of the movie, it's clear it's a rock. But I thought it was a conquer when I first saw it. <laughs> Fancy a game of conquers? Fancy a Again, you know, I think that would have been lost in the rewrites, I think. A little conquer match. Yeah. Anyway, um, so Cage has worked out that there's going to be a disaster tomorrow. 
Um, so he spends the, the evening yes. uh, getting through bottles of whiskey and eating a big pie. <laughs> and then <But> sleeping in. <laughs> before before that happens, we get some uh, lovely passive aggressiveness with his sister because mm. we find out that Cage is estranged from his mm. father, who is a pastor, and obviously Cage has turned his back oh, on the church yes. because he's like... Everything's random, nothing's predetermined, there is no God. Uh, and we get another bit of lovely cagism here where yep. where his sister says something. Your father is a pastor. I am the son of a pastor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I am the son of a pastor. Uh, it was... I loved it. I, do you think, now we're talking about it, it's only come to my head now, but do you think that um, he lost his faith because of his wife's death, or do you think he lost his faith much earlier than that? Well, the fact that, he's a, uh, that he works at MIT suggests that he's a scientist, so perhaps he had issues with yeah. that anyway and believed more in in randomness of the universe rather than there's a set plan for everyone, yeah. uh, which possibly caused some tension and then his wife dying in the hotel fire potentially pushed him over yeah, the edge yeah. in that sense and he'd lost any remnants of faith that he may have had. Yeah, 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 I, I, I agree, mate. I think that's probably it. I think given that he chose a life of science, I think he, the dents in his faith were earlier. But, I don't, yeah, it's... Because there's there's so many layers to this actually, and so many things that they're trying to provoke. Yeah, there is a lot yeah, going there is, on. In this yeah, movie. and for the most part, they do a really good job of conveying it in a way that you can follow, which is not always easy. Yes. And then we get to the the big trailer moment, don't we? Like the 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 big trailer moment. Yes. And it's it's probably the best sequence in the film, really. Isn't it's it? it's a very good sequence. Again, this is where I bump up against the film because the CGI is so poor yeah. in this. Like not just it looks like a PlayStation Two sort of cutscene, the fire around there. So basically, Cage yeah. has tied one on and he's been on a bender all night and he's slept all day, um, and he's late for picking up Caleb from school. Once again, he's on drunk carpool. <laughs> 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 and he gets stuck in traffic on the way to the school, and he notices uh, on his sat nav the latitude and longitude. And he realises that the numbers that he couldn't match up on the piece of paper from Lucinda were the date of the atrocity, the number of people died, and the longitude and latitude against the date so that you knew the the location where it was going to happen. He happens to be right on the flight path of this particular atrocity <laughs> <laughs> that's going to happen. Uh, and he gets out of his car to see... There's a big traffic jam, and he gets out of the car to see what the crack is, and a big plane crash is across, right across the highway, bosh, into a field. <laughs> people getting out of the plane. I don't know how people have even managed to get loose from the wreckage. To be no, I, I didn't work that out either. <laughs> it, and it's a, it's a real good one-shot. It so is, it goes. It, yeah. You see the plane go down... And it's like a handheld one shot and it follows Cage into the wreckage. He yells at a dude who's on fire, which doesn't seem helpful at all. <laughs> Did you catch that? What? Just Nicholas, I'm no. not being funny. He's got more pressing concerns than answering your questions at the moment. His head is on fire. Just, just before that, like just as the plane's about to come down, he it's um the it's all stopped for a Accident, isn't it, on the highway? Yeah, yeah. And he runs up and he does one of those... It's only Cage being an absolute social weirdo that could get away with this. When he goes up to the police officers and says, you know, uh, you know, um, how, how is everybody? Anyone dead? <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> 
Kate! No, Cage. No, you can't. <laughs> and then the plane comes out because he's he's like he's sort of like on a tragedy watch, isn't he? He's waiting for a mass group of people to die. Yeah. So he thinks that when he stumbles upon that that car accident, that that might be the one that he was looking for. But he was very wrong. I mean, I remember at the time in '09 it being an amazing sequence. But you're absolutely right. The, yes. the CG, especially as the plane, yeah, the two bit, the, the fire in and around the incident area and also the plane as it cuts across the highway yeah. have dated pretty badly. Yeah, it does look like a video game cutscene. Yeah, yeah. And the camera work is great yeah. and, the, you know, but that's fundamental, you know, for, for people operating at this level. That's, you know, you've got a really great crew, yeah, great yeah, absolutely. for a good director. Absolutely. You know, so that all it's all the stuff that's being put in after the fact that they're struggling yeah. like the the CG just isn't working for me and we got that'll crop up again as we move it will on. it certainly will <laughs> i think as well though with this with the CG here like because of the scale that's been attempted because this was certainly i think at the time the most impressive sort of cinematic plane crash i'd ever seen i think at the time, yeah, not anymore. At the time, at the um, time. Whereas yeah, yeah. you know, like it, the, I think for me, the effect is going to date quite fondly. I think actually, you know, like oh, you know, like, a bit like now when I look back at like Valley of the Guanji and see the T Rex in plasticine. <laughs> you know, like I'll be like, oh, isn't it nice? Isn't it tweet? <laughs> I'll probably yeah. look at it like that. I think as we go forward. Yeah, definitely. I think they'll go. Oh, they were doing their best. Yeah, exactly. They? And I'm sure they were no, well, doing and, their best. And let's was, not forget fifty million. They only had fifty million, and probably. Cage trousered at least a fifth of that, I would think. He's a I would have thought star. so. It's yeah, tiny, yeah, but... yeah. Yeah. <laughs> trousered. <laughs> I can just imagine him going into like Industrial Light and Magic or whoever did the effects. Give me my money. Give me, give me that cash. I want it in cash. I want it in that cash. <laughs> Don't even render it. I want it in cash. <laughs> Nick, we can't give you $12 million in cash. <laughs> I've got... Why can't you just have it put in your bank account like a normal person? <laughs> I've got my cat's acid and T-Rex skulls to buy. I can't be doing any of this. <laughs> got a castle to pay for in Bath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm doing the Christmas lights. Don't know where the accent went there. It's ridiculous. Um, oh, dear. Yeah, C- Cage is just being his movie star best throughout all this, despite his obvious weirdness, which yeah. is just... I mean, if anyone else... If this, at, at, the scene of a tragedy and someone is behaving the way Cage does, he's getting arrested. <laughs> Disturbing the peace and being weird. Yes, yeah. I, I mean, and we can sort of skip forward to he's now basically on full terrorism watch. Yeah, he's yeah. like, he's like fucking info. He's like info wars, mm. basically, before that was such a thing. <laughs> like, <laughs> so he drops his son off after this catatonic event. He's, he drops his son off and he's off to New York to try and stop the next atrocity from happening. Mm. And honestly, given his internet search history, the <laughs> fact that he was on the scene for this massive plane crash, right, and then the way he behaves when he gets to New York, having tipped the FBI off, he's the most suspicious man in the world. Like, how is he not on some sort of watch list at this stage? It's so <laughs> true, mate. It, I, um, and the, the, the heading to Manhattan bit, you know, there was some... Quite poignant and I think on purpose deliberate callbacks to 9-11 here. Yes, definitely. Yeah. But you're absolutely right about, you know, if you if you research certain things on Google, you're leaving a footprint, are you? Now, um, <laughs> it's, it's often come up a couple of times, but I'm, I'm terrified of my search history um, as a, a crime writer. Um, so, like, yeah. literally, 
you will find on my search history stuff like how long does it take for a body to decompose? <laughs> you know, or what's the best way to suffocate someone? <laughs> you know, and you've just got to hope that when the you know the authorities are looking into me, that they'll go like, "Oh, it's all right. He's a crime writer. It's a thing." But the public don't know this. James, have I told you about <laughs> OK Google? You know the OK Google thing. You know when you say, "Oh, oh, oh no, yeah, my phone's yeah. just opened up now," saying OK Google. Right. I was at the lights in Fernhead of all places, and it was when it was really hot and the windows were down. Yeah. And I was thinking about like a way to, you know, like to get to the resolution of the latest book I was working on, and I said like out loud to my phone on the dashboard. Okay, Google, uh, how long does it take for a body to decompose in two feet of fresh earth? And I didn't realise, you know, at the lights with my window open, other people at the lights with the window open, the looks were pretty special. (laughs) You should have just styled it out and gone, ah, don't worry, I've just got some fella in the boot. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, don't don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. I'm thinking of you here, I want to know how long it's going to take. (laughs) No, it's a constant joke in the crime community that, yeah, you don't want to go near our search histories. So that just means I can get away with all the the cage fan fiction I can download and read. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, the subway crash, because there's a subway crash in Manhattan because Cage was right all along. And it's another huge piece of filmmaking, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's great. Um, Again, some shonky CGI, but not as not too bad in this section because there's loads of trains crashing around and stuff like that. Um, Cage is convinced it's going to be a terrorism, but it's actually just a train jumping the line. It's a malfunction, isn't it? And then he saves a woman and her baby from certain death. And then once again, despite screaming about a terrorist (laughs) attack moments earlier, walks out of the subway station afterwards and is not not spoken to or approached by any law enforcement whatsoever. No, no. I mean, he's he's just left to his own devices and his dodgy search history. Uh, <laughs> it's very strange. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love that. That sequence was actually quite gorier than I remember. I mean, there's a windshield cam moment where the viscera is flying oh, yeah, over yeah. as people are getting mown down. In these tragedy moments, that um, they're huge in scope. Yeah. And um, they really convey the awful bluntness of um, mass loss of life. The good sequences. Yeah, definitely. I think they're really well shot sequences. Like, you know, obviously we've talked about the limitations on the uh, visual effects, but, you know, where, you know, in terms of how they're cut together and where the camera is and the drama of the, of the scene, it's all there. You know, it's, it's really well handled, I think. And uh, we should say at this point, Cage has previously bumped into... Lucinda's daughter, played by Rose Byrne, Diana. Oh, yes, I'm so sorry. And now, um, having told her about this wreckage before it happened, she is now on board as well. So we've got Ben Mendelsohn and and, uh, Rose Byrne on board. Now they're happy to... You know, get involved. I'd be more thinking. Everywhere this guy goes, people keep dying. I am not getting involved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't want to be involved in this guy. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I, and to top it off, he is weird. I mean, the way he meets Diana uh, Roseburn's character is weird. Like, oh, that's my son. That's uh, yeah. Do you want to get go get a coffee? Do you want to get go get a drink? Uh, it's just socially strange, socially weird. 
one of the many reasons we we absolutely love him. Exactly, yeah. And uh, we're also getting hints at this time throughout the film that the solo flares coming from the sun. That's it's right. Red hot in the middle of October in New York. Right. Oh, so, I missed that. Yeah, forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. It's all it's all building. It's all building. And anyway, they decide to take the kids with them. Um, so uh, Lucinda's daughter Diana has a daughter of her own, Abby. They bundle them into the back of the car and they go to a creepy shack out in the woods where uh, <laughs> where Lucinda's mum used to live. Yeah. Um, Before she topped herself. I mean, it's creepy as all hell, <laughs> this place. Especially when the Whisper people. It's not an environment for children. It's not, it's not. <laughs> uh, this is where we, um, the Whisper people show up and they make their presence felt a little bit more. Um, I don't know, they, it was one of the characters called them the Whisper people, I think. Um, uh, yeah. And they offer the kids a chance to go with them. And this is that first time where... You're going along and you're escalating as a film and you take a sudden left turn around here. Yeah, yeah, it's it's crazy. Yeah. Like, it's like, what, what? So the weird nonty guys in the trench coats want to take the kids away, but not to do them any harm, but to save them. This is, this is what happens. Yeah, I, and this is where the film separates, I think, for a lot of people. They're going along with it. Yeah. And uh, for a lot of audience members, I think they've expended their jump in reality with the whole numbers prediction thing. And, you know, like the standard moviegoer is probably gone. Yeah, this is about as far-fetched as I'm willing yeah. to let it go. But then this probably, when, you know, when the geezer, like Cage follows him into the woods and he opens his mouth and blinds him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think like that is, for a lot of audience goers who, are, if you're slightly on board or not sure if you're on board and you see this, the films jump the shark and in a grand way with these whisper people and what they're up to. Yes, because now we're aware that they're that they're not even of this world. We don't know what they are at this stage, but they're supernatural. Yes, or yeah. science fiction in in some sense. Yeah, yeah. there's definitely a paranormal and uh, paranormal um, texture to them and what they're trying to do. Yes, definitely. Uh, and while they're hanging out in uh, Lucinda's creepy death shack, <laughs> they find out that there's um, one of the codes. It looks like a 33, but it's actually two E's, isn't it? Yes. And that's, uh, they find at this stage that the last atrocity is going to affect everybody else. So yes. we're not sure what that means at this stage, but we're soon going to find out. So we could, we sort of got... We've got the ratcheting thing with the temperature going up. We've got solar flares yeah. on the on the news. We know something's good. We're looking at a cataclysmic event coming down the pike, I think. And, yeah, uh, yeah. And now we've got weird, like, otherworldly people, you know, offering to help the children <laughs> and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, but like, I love that you used that word ratchet a minute ago, James. I love that word because just, yeah. you know... It's all it's there. All, yeah, when you see everyone else, I'm like, oh man, you know, like, and that we're not just like there's a tragedy that's going to happen that is going to have loss of life. We're talking about something biblical at this point. Yes, definitely. So they sort of make a plan that you know, Cage figures it out that there's going to be. He's been doing some research into solar flares or something, which he's never mentioned no. until this part <laughs> yeah. of the movie. Yeah, no. But, he, he, you know, uh, I had to watch this scene twice, I have to be honest, mate. Like, I'm sure we made a bit of a jump here. I, I don't know. I'm going to follow it, but I don't know where this has come from. But suddenly, yeah, um, there's a yeah. solar flare that's going to wipe out the planet with a 100 micro Tesla explosion of radiation, which was sort of, I was not expecting. <laughs> it's a, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and he tells Ben Mendelssohn, sort of ruining his day completely, tells him, you know, just go home and do whatever you're going to do, yeah. mate, because we're all going to be dead pretty soon. I know the date, been telling you all along. Yeah. We're all dead. <laughs> uh, and him and uh, Diana come up with, Diana comes up with a plan to hide in a cave because, yeah, it's not a great plan. No. To try and shelter themselves from this huge solar flare that's going to destroy the entire planet. Uh, yeah. But um, as they're preparing to do that, Cage is sort of quite casual in going along with this and like he's like yeah 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 let's do it let's get as much water as we can and we'll head to these bloody caves we're all gonna die but if it makes them feel better <laughs> we'll just go along with it and then all of a sudden he realizes oh oh we didn't get the actual coordinates for where to go to you know because <laughs> lucinda go- but right back in the cold open she got interrupted in the she middle did. of yeah, yeah. etching out the code <laughs> so we've got the date we've got everybody else but we don't know there's a no, there's more more to the code. So Cage, this is like, <laughs> I can imagine Cage doing this in real life, let alone in Definitely. this sort of heightened situation. <laughs> <laughs> so he decides to go back to the elementary school <laughs> and take the the broom cupboard that they found Lucinda scratching the codes into off the hinges, <laughs> take it back to his house. Sand it down to get the coordinates for where he believes they need to go to in to have any chance of survival. I mean, for me, he's doing this all the wrong way around. So he's he's driven to the school, got the door off the hinges, driven back. Take the power tools to the <laughs> trip. I think um I have to I mean the fact that he gets them all in the car to nip to the school to steal a door, then take them all back again. <laughs> But then seeing him frantically sanding a door is one of the funniest cage moments I've ever seen. I think I think this it's is brilliant. it's it's right up there with with his little sander and he's got a little chisely thing and he's like, Oh god <laughs> The coordinates are on here <laughs> It's super And at this stage I don't blame Rosebird for bundling the kids no. into the car and driving off because he looks like he's absolutely lost it. In fact I judge her for not doing this earlier. Yeah <laughs> Yeah. And and this is where like the, the well, but firstly, Beltrami's score changes pace, and we're getting real end of the world vibes here from Beltrami. Here again, like you were saying before, James, like this is actually a score that goes through all the different myriad of emotions and shapes and sizes, but it's actually replicating, sorry, reflecting what is up there on the screen, and it's doing a really good job of it. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, because and- it's quite Hitchcockian while he's messing around with the door. <laughs> it's like <laughs> thriller, and then it goes to some sort of oh, apocalypse is coming territory, which is which is great fun. But yeah, she bundles the kids into the back of the car and she heads off and they stop at a gas station. A cage rings her up and goes absolutely mental, which is hilarious. It's incredible. <laughs> the caves won't save us! Nothing can! <laughs> but the fact that this is the end of the world, right, and it's become a full disaster movie, when it gets down to it, if this were to ever happen, I want to see it through Nicolas Cage's eyes. That's that's what I want. This is he's it's brilliant. Everything that's happening is ticking every box for me. It's brilliant. So <laughs> Roseburn stops at a gas station to fill up uh, on petrol, and when she's there, there's an emergency broadcast message comes over, and everyone mm. starts looting and absolutely losing their their minds because the end of the world's coming. <laughs> And during the whole, uh, all the chaos, she's obviously distracted and she's just been shouted out by Nicolas Cage, which would put anyone off. 
<laughs> the task at hand. It would. You'd need a few minutes just to gather yourself again. God, he really shouted at me. Like he probably went cage rage. I know I've taken his son, but it was... It was naught to 60 in a second. <laughs> He's unbelievable. It is. Uh-huh. Yeah, and then the otherworldly be- muttering beings have taken the kids while she's distracted. Yeah, the, the Stony Conquer Whisper Boys have appeared. <laughs> They've nicked the kids. <laughs> Great band name. <laughs> I think that's what Hanson now go by, I think. <laughs> Hanson, what a weird pull. <laughs> I show I was actually listening to them yesterday. <laughs> oh, lovely. Not not the Umbop stuff. Oh, no, when they got more mature. New stuff. <laughs> New stuff, yeah. Now now they're the Stony oh. Conker Whisper Boys. <laughs> uh, um, there's mad looting, but don't worry, Cage has got a massive truck to get through everything, uh, but he only gets yeah. there in time to see <laughs> Rose Byrne get ironed out by a massive truck. <laughs> Which is a great... Crash to be it is, it is, yeah, it's really good. Like a real jaw dropper surprise moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he gets there and she dies in the back of the ambulance, which is basically the date that her mother told her she would die on. So again, yes, yeah. You know, Lucinda, she doesn't, she's like, she shits on Nostradamus, doesn't she? She's, <laughs> she's not missing a beat. Yeah, Mystic Meg, take a back seat. Because... <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> So Cage basically he goes right. I'm going to these coordinates, and lo and behold, mm. he gets to the coordinates, and the kids are there, as he suspected, mm. because he's bloody clever, because he works at MIT, and he's Nicholas Cage, and he can't stop having meltdowns every couple of minutes. And yeah, the Whisper people have got him, and they're gonna Adam and Eve, basically, aren't they? They're gonna use them to restart the species. Yes, basically, that's their plan. They're gonna take them to a different planet, along with some cute little bunnies that they found in the forest. And they're gonna start- <laughs> Repopulating the the human race and in a different part of space, basically. So this is all actually. If anyone hasn't seen the film, we're not making any of this up. This is actually what happens in the movie. It's just how this is again. We keep using that phrase, but swinging for offences. This is filmmaking that is going for. I mean, there's there's TV shows that don't put this much into a series arc, like, and they've got (laughs) fifteen hours to work with. Ridiculous. It and just a fraction of the budget here. Yeah, it never stops. And anyway, um, now, do you want to do this bit, Rob? Because it all gets a bit emotional, doesn't it? Well, it does. It does. The, 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 the Whisper people say that um, you can take the bunnies with you. Yeah, I don't really know why. But you can't take Nicolas Cage with you. So Cage's got to say goodbye to his son. This is after, sorry, a huge spaceship has appeared over their heads. Um, yeah. These kids must be under sedation because my pants would be chocker. <laughs> Absolutely chocker. <laughs> um, but the kids have been chosen that they can start over and everything can start over because of because of them. At this point, I'm thinking, like, as an astrophysicist, Cage must think this is Christmas. He's got these, you know, extraterrestrials in front of him here. And no wonder he's like, yeah, I'm coming with you. But the kids are only allowed to go. And Cage's face cracks and it is just so yeah. harrowing to watch. Uh, I found this sequence actually really hard. We've both got little boys, mate, and this was yes. this was not fun. No, no, no. And it's it's really well played by Cage, basically. And the kid yeah. doesn't want to go, obviously, but he convinces him because now we're getting back to we're going all the way back to that lecture at the start where yeah. we talked about determinism versus randomness. And Cage has always believed that we live in a random universe and things just happen. And there's no rhyme or reason. But now, because of the way things have gone, 
and the fact that his son's been chosen to go and repopulate the human race on a different planet, mm. he is now firmly in the determination. Everything happens for a reason. Yeah. All hail the great creator or whatever, right? <laughs> and I'm on board. This yeah. is my purpose. My purpose was to get my boy to this. You're stage, right, mate. He didn't really get. But he didn't actually, because the other fellas picked him up at the gas stations. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they get him most of the way there. But by the end here, I mean, like, his son doesn't want to go without him. And he's persuading his son to go and save the human race, essentially. Yeah. Which is, I mean, it's very cool. I mean, it's as you know, as, a, as an actor, if someone, if a director pitched to you, um, would you like to be in this film where you try and convince your son uh, as part of a sacrifice of yourself to go and save the human race, you'd be like, oh, I can stretch my legs there. <laughs> I can have a good time with that one. <laughs> I've just come to the realisation, though, that like we've been thinking that Cage has had some sort of agency in this movie and he can affect any... Like, if he'd have done nothing, like if he'd have just got blind drunk that night and not put the whiskey stain on the on the piece of paper and noticed the pattern within the numbers, if he'd have just sat at home and done nothing, the film would have ended exactly the same way. Yeah, it would have... It absolutely would have. <laughs> so, oh my! Oh. But isn't that isn't that the nature of determinism? It was always in place. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's good. It's a. F- it's a bit like um, Indiana Jones in the in Raiders of the Lost Ark. There's that theory, isn't it? That Indiana Jones jumps through all these hoops and everything. Yeah. But if he'd have if he'd have actually done nothing, the Nazis still would have opened the the Ark and had got all their faces melted off. Yeah, <laughs> so that's true. The film would have ended exactly the same way. And so, you know, if you're using Raiders of the Lost Ark as a template, then you must be <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, oh, gosh, there's, there's so many good existential questions that this asks and also has a go at answering. I really like it. I, yeah, This definitely. is not, we're not coasting. Like we said before, yeah, it's got big ideas. It has it's got big ideas, and then uh, so Caleb flies off in the spaceship, the big chandeliers. Yeah, yeah, and they disappear into space, and Cage is absolutely destroyed. Cries himself to sleep. Yeah, in the middle of the woods. <laughs> and then the the following day, it's the end of the world, isn't it? So he goes and reconnects with his estranged family. Yeah, um, as the world slowly ends. And there's a big solar flare and the entire world gets absolutely destroyed in one foul swoop. Every thing left on the planet is dead. Yeah, I mean, um, Abby and Caleb are chilling on some CGI fields with bunnies while the planet absolutely gets murdered. Um, And like while this is happening, I'm like, how have they done this on a 50 million budget? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Because yeah. even the scene with the extras when he's ploughing through the city and there's looting going on and most yeah, of it's on yeah, fire yeah, and all that. How have they done this? Uh, and um, he gives his dad uh, the most awkward hug in film history because he won't look at him while he's doing it. <laughs> he even cages that out. <laughs> you know, you can't see me on the podcast, guys, but I'm, I'm like leaning across to one side. <laughs> so I, I can't see who I'm looking at while I... You know, like like literally like the person that I'm about to hug has got the most decrepit BO of all time. Um, that is obviously <laughs> yeah. how he feels about his father. And then, yeah, it, it the planet blows up in a really amazing, big budget, huge scope way. And this looks all right. This it looks does, doesn't right. it? So it really does. Yeah, yeah. There's no The CGI here looks absolutely fine, so I don't know yeah. if you just like... You know, oh, God, we put too much into that last section. <laughs> These other sequences, <laughs> now we're going to... We're going to have to do these on the Commodore 64, lads. 
Because <laughs> Cage came in and trousered his, trousered his $10 million. He's taken all the petty cash. It sounds like he took all the Apple Macs with him as well. When he put on these, put on these down Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> uh, there's not many movies that would end with the full-on destruction and total decimation of the planet. No. <laughs> one that springs to mind, which is another oh. uh, critically maligned movie and one that I'm not a huge fan of, but uh, you know Terminator 3, uh, Rise of the Machines? Oh, yeah. That ends with complete nuclear war, doesn't it? Does it? I, I, I saw it in the cinema, but I literally can't remember a thing. Yeah, yeah. The, the whole thing is, is that the T-800 convinces... Spoilers for Terminator 3 if you haven't <laughs> seen it. Don't worry, it's not canon when the new one comes out anyway. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so the T-800, is, his whole thing is to get John Connor and his future wife into a bunker because they can't stop Judgment Day. It's going to happen anyway. And all the nukes go off all over the world. It's a really good ending to what is a pretty bang average film. But yeah. this is this is a good ending to what I think is a better film than that. I agree with you. I agree yeah. with you. And yeah, um, and it's all over. I mean, like, literally everything is all over. Credits roll, it's all over. But before they do that, actually, they pull out slightly in those increments, like at the intro. You know where we came yeah, down yeah. slowly, and but we reversed that, but now the planet is decimated, and you're watching the solar winds take out the whole... It's really good, man. It's really good. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's a great... I, I, I've really enjoyed talking about this film. Me too, but, mate. Me, me too. Can I, um, uh, can I get your best bit? What's your best bit? Uh, moose on fire. We <laughs> skipped all over this. So th- there's a section of the film where uh, where Caleb has a premonition of the fiery fate that awaits every th- every living thing on the planet, and uh, basically all the woodland creatures come striding out of the uh, out of the woods by his house, <laughs> flames licking at their backs. And one of which is a moose that is very much on fire. And I'll be honest with you, you know, when I go to the cinema, I want to see something I haven't seen before. I've never seen a moose on fire before, especially a shonky CGI one. So, you know, it is funny, but also quite enjoyable as well. So, yeah, that's a memorable moment for me. I, I, I can't argue with that. Um, I'm, I'm struggling. I mean, it's always, for me, the best bit in a Cage movie is always going to be something to do with Cage. Um, when he, the, the, I mean, he's, he asks his son four or five times in the film, "Have you done your homework?" <laughs> it's always brilliant uh, because you know, like his obsession with homework is. Well, I suppose if you if you want to get to MIT, you've got to be fairly handy with the old homework. Um, but yeah, seeing him turn around with a little like paint stripper and a sander, shouting at Rose Byrne in a shed, um, cage and a sander. I've just written here, cage with a sander. <laughs> just is it's so so good five stars five stars yeah roger ebert five stars cage gets his hands on some power tools five stars um so james for your reconsideration what are you thinking you know what I've, now that we've talked about the movie a lot more i'm sort of going back and forth a little bit on this one but i'm going to say yes definitely and more more emphatically than i would before we recorded this episode because i've found a lot more to enjoy in the film from discussing it with you. So thanks for Nice, that. nice, man. So yeah, for me, this is an ambitious movie. There's some real big ideas in here and it's genuinely surprising as it progresses. Like it takes some real left turns. It veers from horror to sci-fi to disaster movie and the ending is a real showstopper. 
you know, everyone's going to remember that ending. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, like, oh, I didn't really, you know, even if you, oh, I thought the movie was so, so, I didn't like it, but bloody hell, the whole earth gets set on fire at the end and everybody <laughs> dies. <laughs> I think, you know, a word of caution for the listeners, if you haven't seen it before and you think you want to give it a look, it will take some patience. Um, you know, there is some very shonky effects work in there, you know, you're going to have to be forgiving of that. I would say it'd be really good to watch on a commute somewhere, maybe on a plane or a train, but given uh, some of the sequences <laughs> in this film, that's probably not the best <laughs> But no, no, I think it's really good. The only reservation I've got with it really is I don't like to see Cage play it this straight. He still does some crazy stuff because he's Cage. Yeah, and, yeah. He yeah. can't, but yeah. he's too much of a maverick to be shackled into the straight-laced guys. I want to go and see him perform, you know? So <laughs> so that's my only reservation. But yeah, yeah, I think it's worth a watch if you haven't seen it before. Nice. I, yeah, I think that might be... Of the films I... Oh, Hard Target, obviously, was the the opener and the one where you guys did say we should reconsider. This Because since then, I think this is my first pick that's actually been suggested that someone else should reconsider it. Um, is it really? I think it might be, yeah. Um, <laughs> for me, um, yeah, this is bold, ballsy, bravura filmmaking with big hitters and a sky-high concept. And it'll either work for you or it won't. But isn't it... Great, and aren't we lucky that these things get made? I'd rather a film try something mega than coast, and this film does anything but coast with an amazing use of budget. Um, I, res- I respect anyone or anything that dares to be great because, the- for me, the true test of greatness is so often in the attempt and not the result. So it this movie yes. went for greatness. Whether it achieved it or not is up to you, but the fact that it tried means that, for me, you should give this a watch. Definitely. I echo that. And, you know, not for nothing, we don't, nowadays, we don't get a lot of original movies, movies written for the screen that aren't based on pre existing material. So true, mate. So true. Um, this one did well at the box office, not so great with the critics, but, you know, it's very important to support original film. Couldn't agree more, mate. Um, I've enjoyed that today, mate. Have you? Yeah, it's really good. Nice. Yeah. yeah. I hope Simon's okay. Yeah, well, we'll welcome him back when he's finished, you know, doing whatever it is. That was two more, well, it was more important than we were. Uh, anyway, thank you for listening. Yeah, I know. <laughs> thank you for listening. Uh, because we are really cool and current, you can come and say word, yo, or even yeet to us on Twitter. Send uh, uncool emails, you luddite, to reconsiderpod at gmail.com. And like the heavens at the end of the 2009 Nicolas Cage film, Knowing, give us all the stars up close and personal on whatever service you're listening on. Say goodbye, James. Bye-bye. Goodbye. I hope Simon's all right. I miss him. (laughs) I really miss him.